Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for being here wherever you are in the world. I can't wait to discuss with my guest today. Her name is Deborah Diamond. Dr. Deborah Diamond left a high profile career as a Wall Street money manager to pursue a life of purpose and spirituality. Dr. Diamond is a best-selling author, speaker, spiritual teacher and psychic medium. Her books are Life After Death, Miraculous Stories of Healing and Transformation in the Extraordinary Lives of People with New Found Powers and Diary of a Death Doula, 25 Lessons the Dying Teach Us About the Afterlife. Dr. Diamond is a former regular CNBC commentator and John Hopkins University professor. She earned a PhD from the Esoteric Interfaith Theological Seminary and MBA in Finance from the George Washington University, a Master's in Contemporary Art from Christie's Education and a Certificate from the Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland. This is her story and this is her passion. Deborah Diamond, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. It's been a long time coming, but I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. I'd love to just do a bit of a brief background about your your transition from corporate life to purpose and spirituality. Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, as we were talking offline before the show began, I was filling you in a little bit on uh, my background and I was a money manager on Wall Street. That was something I really aspired to. I thought that if I could make X amount of money and, and be a fund manager, that was that was the pinnacle of success. And and I did all that and more. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I was a commentator on CNBC and a professor at Hopkins. And, um, you know, I wore a lot of different hats. I started seven different uh funds on Wall Street. I helped others get funds started. So I, you know, I, I really was, um, had a very high profile. I was actually the first woman hedge fund manager also. So I had a Should high I say profile. congratulations? Um, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, but as I mentioned to you, I remember sitting in my office by myself one day, I had made the X amount of dollars that I wanted to make. I had the fund. I had the notoriety. You know, I was written up in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, the New York Times, you know, everywhere. And I remember sitting there and thinking, this is meaningless. It was not at all what I thought it was going to be, you know. And, and you know, it's funny, as I think about it, um, back then, there was a company that um, I had persuaded my firm to invest in. And, you um, at the time that I brought the company around as a potential investment, um, the company had no revenues, they had no earnings, they were pioneering an industry that didn't exist yet. And I brought it to my company and, and they said to me, why would we want to invest in this? I mean, there's nothing there. And I said, well, it's gonna be really successful. I, I knew it was gonna be successful and it was. It ended up, we invested, it ended up being the uh, most successful investment ever in, in this one fund. And um, the CEO of this company, I'm not going to tell you who it is because he's a 
well-known person. He was chairman and CEO of, a com of the company. And uh, he asked me, I guess it was about five or 10 years after we invested in the company, to come to New York to come to a dinner that was being held at the Pierre Hotel. I don't know if your listeners know where the Pierre is, mm -hmm. kind of catty corner to the plaza on Fifth Avenue. Come to a dinner for institutional money managers. And I went up to New York and the dinner was being held in a ballroom. And he took me up to the balcony and we looked down into the ballroom and he said, see this? And I said, yes, you know, the room was packed with money managers and, and uh, institutional investors. There were probably a thousand people there. And he said, see this? And I said, yes. And he said, you started this. And um, I, you know, wow. I said, okay, whatever I said, but he said, and you know what? It was a lot more fun back then. <laughs> so here is somebody who has been extraordinarily successful. I'm sure he's in the Forbes 400. And, um, you know, sometimes the journey is, is better than the reality. You know, it's just so getting, true. Yeah, getting there and learning and, you know, all the adventures you have along the way and the people that you encounter. That is sometimes so much more interesting and fulfilling and gratifying than, you know, when you finally make it. I mean, I found that when I made it, um, it was kind of phony because people who didn't particularly like me before I was successful all of a sudden wanted to be my best friend. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And um, it just was not, that's not the way I operate. And, um, you know, it was just not, it wasn't real. It wasn't satisfying. It didn't do anything for my soul. Um, it was nice to have that achievement, but it was not uh, what I expected at all. And um, that was, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't immediately after that that I became, became a um, psychic medium, um, but I can trace back some of this, some of this veering off the traditional path, I think, to years earlier. Um, but when I was in the investment business, um, I had good intuition. And my boss used to say to me, you know, Deborah, you have really good instincts. And I thought, okay, you know, whatever that means. I, you know, I was juggling 20 balls up in the air, three kids, a husband. All my clients were in Europe, so I was on plane all the time. And um, Too busy, really, to even think about the meaning of life and what would make you happy. No. And, and so I, and I, you know, I certainly didn't have, you know, the word psychic never comes up in the investment business. Nobody ever talks about anything like that. It's a dollars and cents business. So um, I just didn't, didn't ascribe anything to that. But the, pro the thing was that in the investment business, I was able to pick up a piece of paper, a prospectus, a research report, an annual report, and know about that company. I would know if it would be a good investment, if the management team would be successful, if the product would be successful. And I didn't know how, this was without reading it. I didn't know how that was possible, but I, you know, everything was, I was going 150 miles an hour. So um, I didn't think too much about it. And it wasn't until 2008, 2007, 2008, I took an intuition development class in New York because I thought I had pretty good intuition. It'd be fun to tune it up. And that was really all I was thinking. And I went up to New York for the weekend and uh, on Saturday morning, we were doing exercises in this class and I was getting everything and I didn't know how that was possible, but um, I didn't think too much about it. And then we took a break and when we returned, the teacher said, now we're going to do a seance. And I was like, a seance, you know, this is an intuition development class. And, you know, what I thought we were just going to explore our intuition. But, uh, you know, and I thought about leaving, but 
I figured, well, it's Saturday morning, the class goes through Sunday afternoon. You know, I'll just do this one exercise to seance, nothing will happen, <laughs> nothing will happen. And uh, then we'll go on to the next exercise. So the teacher said, I'm going to put you in a meditative state. You're going to meditate and then I'll take you out of the meditation. And if you see anyone, you let me know and I'll tell you what to do. And I thought, well, that doesn't pertain to me. I'm not going to see anyone. Um, anyway, we meditated. She brought us out of the meditation and she said, does anyone see any, anyone? And I looked around the room and everyone was looking at each other and I raised my hand and she said, yes, Deborah, what do you see? And I said, I see about 50 people. These were people who had passed. Um, I was seeing my relatives who had passed. I was seeing uh, loved ones of the uh, other folks in the class. And I was seeing just like random people. I saw a couple of 42nd Street showgirls walking through the center of the room. But you so, knew, sorry to interrupt, but you knew they weren't in the physical form. They passed, oh, they left the... Yeah, well, it was sort of like seeing someone in a dream, you know, right. if you've ever had a okay. dream and someone comes in. Also, that, I mean, I saw people who I knew were dead. You know, I right. saw my aunt who had died, I don't know, a number of years before that. I saw um, a, another relative, a young, young woman who had died a few years prior to that. Um, and they weren't alive. So, you know, they were all there, but none of them were alive. So, um, but they looked alive and they were communicating with me. You know, they were eager to communicate with me and they looked happy. So the teacher said, um, well, if you see someone in the corner of the room, chances are they go with someone sitting in that corner. And I said, I do see someone in the corner. And I, she asked me to describe the person. I said, he was Hispanic. He had, um, dark hair parted in the middle, big handlebar mustache, big white teeth. And as I described him, the woman sitting in that corner said, I know who that is. That's my fiance. Uh, he died two years ago. And she, the, that woman asked if I could identify him if she showed me pictures of him on her cell phone during the break. So I said, yes, because it was the same as looking at you. You know, he was so vivid. So during the break, she came over with her cell phone and she flipped through her pictures and I said, there, that's him. And she said, yes, that's my fiance. Now she had wanted to hear from him. She believed in the afterlife. She was very disappointed because it had been two years and she had not heard from him. But lo and behold, in this class, there was a connection that was made. So she was very grateful to me for that. And she hugged me and she thanked me. And now I come from Wall Street. There are no hugs on Wall Street. There are no thank yous either. And um, at all. No kisses on the cheek or maybe fake kisses. No. <laughs> it doesn't happen. No, it's just next. What are you going to oh, do next? Okay. So, um, you know, uh, or why, you know, so you're up 25%. How come you're not up 30? So, um, so, you know, I recognize that I had done something meaningful for someone and that wasn't lost on me. Um, I spent the rest of the weekend in that class and all kinds of things were happening. Uh, we had another seance, more people came through. People in the class were coming after, up to me and saying, you know, you must've been doing this for a long time. And I said, I, I've never done this before. So I drove home Sunday night. I was really bewildered. I was emotionally overwhelmed. I didn't know what was happening. And um, I called my youngest son who, just finished his MBA at Duke. So that gives you an idea of the kind of analytical, you know, like very kind of left brain mind he has. And um, I called him and I 
and I told him what happened and he listened to me. He didn't say, you know, that none of these things happened. He, he listened and when I was all done, he said, well, that makes sense. We're just energy and the energy has to go somewhere. And, you know, when he said that, that, that resonated with me because it was a pseudo, it was a scientific slash spiritual kind of approach. And um, I could understand that, you know, because everything is energy, you know, and so, and, and that's continued to infuse my, my work, you know, ever since then, you know, this aspect of energy is involved in everything that we do and, um, and in us. So that was my, my start really with um, the spiritual world, but I didn't embrace it. I didn't tell anybody what happened because people who have these kinds of experiences never talk about them. Uh, you don't talk about them because you don't want anyone to think you're crazy. You don't want to be embarrassed. So I didn't talk about it. Um, that summer, I went out to Taos, New Mexico to paint. I'd been there many times in the past. And my idea was just to go out there for two months and paint. And I rented a, a casita for two months. And when my lease was up, I said, I, I'm not going back. I didn't know why, but I knew I wasn't coming back. And I stayed out there for a number of years. And now when I look back on it, I realize that this was supposed to be sort of my internship. This is when I began to unpack the energy and work with it. And it's very easy in Taos because when people say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a psychic. They say, oh, me too. So right. it's not, it's I don't acceptable. know what it's yeah, it's, it's normalized, you know, I don't know what it's like where you live, but where I live, you know, on the East Coast now, it's, you would never, that you would never have that kind of encounter. Mm -hmm. So that's when I began to do this work. And eventually I came back East and um, I began doing readings and, and teaching and, um, uh, and certain people led me into other uh, circumstances, you know, that led into writing uh, two books. One was life after near death about people who had near death experiences and returned with abilities and gifts that they didn't have prior to the experience. So there are people, cases in that book of people who have returned with these newfound musical abilities. I mean, there's one case of a, of a famous uh, composer and musician who'd never played an instrument before their NDE, but following the NDE, they ran out and they bought all this musical equipment, electronic equipment. And, uh, you know, now I don't know how many CDs they've, they've recorded. I don't know, hundreds. Um, they're well known, uh, but they had never had anything to do with music prior to their NDE. Um, there are stories of artists, same thing, you know, who were not artists before their NDEs. As a matter of fact, one of the people in the book is a fellow who had been a scientist and he came, uh, he came down with a case of dengue fever and meningitis. Uh, they thought he was going to die, but he lived, but he had this complex near-death experience and um, is now an artist. And he said to me, you have to understand, this is not me. I am a scientist. I am not an artist. But he channels this, um, this spiritual art and uh, it's become his life. So there are many stories of people who've had near-death experiences and return with uh, inexplicable gifts and abilities. Um, back then when I wrote this book, actually I was doing the research in 2013, um, 
NDE after effects were not part of the conversation. Now they're starting to become part of the conversation. People don't understand them. They're not well understood, um, but um, you know, I've done quite a bit of research on them. I read for a lot of NDEers and STEers, spiritually people who've had spiritually transformative experiences. I think I understand what they've been through. I've just talked to so many people and done so much work on it. So, um, uh, you know, it's, those are not the only people I read for, but I seem to read for a lot of these people. And I have to say right now, uh, the whole world I think is going through a spiritual transformation. You know, if you look at what the, what the backbone is of a, a trans, transformational experience, it's usually trauma, some sort of trauma. It doesn't have to be physical trauma, it can be, but it could also be other forms of trauma. I mean, illness, um, loss, um, you know, sort of what's going on right now. I mean, if, if, if I said to you, you need to go and have a uh, silent meditation retreat for a year, <laughs> you know, be isolated and yeah. not see people and whatnot, you know, you would never sign up for that. But in fact, the whole world's pretty much signed up for that. It's been imposed on them. And um, there are going to be a lot of uh, after effects from this. So they won't be visible for a few years. But um, this kind of isolated meditative kind of experience where so many of the encounters that you typically have are removed from your life um, makes people, for many people, you know, they experience a shift. And I, I sort of believe that uh, a lot of the world is going to have, you know, experience that. And they will, there will be interesting ramifications for the world because of it. So I, um, you know, I wrote that book and uh, then in uh, 2000, in, Last year, but almost a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I, I um, had a book published, uh, Diary of a Death Doula, 25 Lessons to Dying Teach Us About the Afterlife. And that was a book, that's a book about my work as a death doula sitting bedside with the actively dying. And um, it was something that I wanted to do. My mother passed away many years ago. And when she was ill, we had hospice come to the house. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience with hospice, but they're really wonderful. They're angels. And um, when the hospice people were in the house, one of them handed me a piece of paper and said, you might want to read this. And I thought, I set it aside. I thought it might be, you know, something technical, but eventually I picked it up. And when I read it, it said, if the soul is ready and the body isn't, you don't leave. If the body's ready and the soul isn't, you don't leave. When the body's ready and the soul's ready, then you leave. So, you know, I looked at that and I thought, wow, this is a lot more than I expected from hospice. And also this idea that we are body and soul um, was something I had to think about because prior to that, my idea of death, I think was something that had been informed by movies, you know, or TV shows, you know, I thought it was something probably very dramatic and like a lightning bolt out of the blue and all the secrets of the universe would be revealed. And, you know, death in fact is not at all like that. Death is more like birth. It's a process. It takes time. And if you've ever been involved with someone who's, who's dying and you wonder why are they still here? Well, you know, either they're, they're not ready to leave, their soul isn't ready, or physically uh, they're not, you know, they're not ready to go. So the two of them have to be lined up, the soul and the body have to be lined up. That's not a new idea. That idea has been around for thousands of years, but um, I, 
I really resonated with that. And I knew at some point I'd want to do some work for hospice. It took me many years to eventually do the training. And at the time, uh, you know, when I did the training to be a death doula, I knew I wanted to sit with actively dying people. People who are, uh, who are death doulas can um, interact in all sorts of ways with patients. They can be on the front end when a patient first enters hospice. And, um, you know, if the patient is um, alert and responsive, they could be doing uh, crossword puzzles with them or listening to music or, you know, just be a companion. Um, some doulas interact with families. They may help with wills or legacy projects. Some even get involved in funerals. But I wanted to be a, a doula who sat bedside with the actively dying because as a medium, I talked to dead people. So I knew I wouldn't be, I knew I wasn't afraid of that. And um, so that's, you know, that's what I've done. And there's, you know, I could say that I think everything that we know about death is wrong. Um, you know, what happens at end of life is not what you've been told for many people. Um, you know, our idea of, of death, I think is very much infused by the Western attitude towards death, which is clinical and antiseptic. And, and um, you know, the soul has sort of been removed from death. I mean, up until a few hundred years ago, uh, death was part of life, you know, in the Egyptian culture, uh, they had the book of the dead. They believed that it was just one long journey, life, death, it was all one journey. Um, and in other ancient cultures as well, but it isn't until you get to a few hundred years ago that Western science starts to intercede. And, um, you know, instead of people dying at home surrounded by their loved ones, they are whisked off to a hospital or a medicalized setting, which is, you know, scary. And it can be very clinical and antiseptic. And, you know, I think that's what's made people fear death. So, you know, you've got that. And, you know, and then in addition to that, I think if you've ever been near someone who's dying, um, you know, if you see them, Physically, they don't often look very good and it looks like nobody's home. But in fact, there's a lot more going on with them than is visible to the naked eye. You know, because I'm a medium, I'm able to see a lot of things. And um, even if they, their physical body doesn't look very good, um, they are, their consciousness is active. They may not be responsive, but their consciousness is active. And there's a lot going on. They could be traveling, they could be have, journeying, they call it. They could be having conversations with loved ones you know, in the afterlife. They could be revisiting favorite memories from their youth. I mean, there's so many things that they could be doing. And their physical body may be lying there in bed, not looking so great, but um, their consciousness is, is expanding and you know, very involved. So, you know, that's the part that people don't see. And that's certainly the part that medicine doesn't treat. Uh, they, that's not even part of the program. So, um, but it's, it's there. And, um, you know, I can see it, but I mean, there are plenty of nurses, hospice nurses and other nurses who, who see this as well. Doctors, not so much. Nurses interact with patients in a different way than doctors do, but, um, uh, many people have had experiences, uh, you know, at the bedside of loved ones at end of life, where these are called shared death experiences, where they are seeing the same thing that the, their loved one who's passing is seeing, you know, and, um, you know, the, the veil is lifted in, in those late stages and um, uh, other people, you know, can experience it as well at times. So there's a lot going on, but it's not how we in the Western world 
you know, tend to look at death. It's death for, for us is kind of one size fits all. You know, you go off to hospice, you go off to the hospital, you get this treatment, that treatment, and then you die. So, you know, so, um, but it's not, not like that. I mean, it is, but it's not. Wow. Well, what, what a busy lady you are, Deborah. <laughs> You've done so many things. I, I, I have to ask the question, um, what happens when we die? What is the mm. process? Which so well, many people want the answers for or want to yeah. understand or remove the fear of. Yeah, well, you know, we die like we live, you know, so th this is not the time to make a U-turn. This is not the time to try on a new personality or become a different person. So, you know, we, we don't change at end of life. I mean, uh, people who are, whatever your personality is, it just is still there. It's still, you're still you. Um, you know, at, um, at end of life, of course, you know, when people are actively dying, they're seldom responsive. They don't talk very much. I'm just talking about the physical side mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. They don't talk much. Um, but, you know, as I said, um, there's a, a lot more going on than most people realize. First of all, um, we are told that their sense of hearing is the last thing to go, but I believe that all their senses are intact because there's too much evidence uh, of them being aware of all sorts of things, them being aware of time. Um, certainly they can register voices uh, in the room. Uh, they, they, their awareness is, is, you know, just much more intact than I think most people would give them credit for. Um, you know, there are times where, you know, these patients, when, you know, they're near death, they're not wearing a watch. They're not conscious. They're not they're conscious, they're not responsive. But, um, you know, a, a nurse may come in the room and say, Mr. Jones, you know, your daughter is coming at three, three o'clock today, not four, you know, and, um, you know, it's now maybe 2.30. And um, the patient's not wearing a watch and they're pretty, as they say in medical terminology, gorked out. But, um, uh, you know what, I've sat with patients and at, you know, one minute to three, that's when they pass. So they seem to have some awareness of time, you know, and, and people seem to have um, control over when they, when they die. Uh, they choose when they die. You know, there are these stories of people, loved ones sitting at the bedside of the dying 24 seven, you know, keeping up a vigil because everybody wants to be there so mom doesn't die alone. And then somebody gets up to go get a cup of coffee and lo and behold, that's when mom leaves, right. you know. Mom knows who's there and when and who isn't there. And, uh, you know, some people like to die in private. You know, for some, it's a private experience. They don't want others around. Uh, some like to have 25 people in the room. You know, it just depends. But um, I think that at, at end of life, you know, people are, as I mentioned, they're journeying, they're traveling, they are seeing sites to them that are um, similar to what NDEers see uh, when they have their NDE, they, you know, they may see glorious landscapes, they may hear beautiful music, um, but we can't even really describe it. We don't really have the terms to describe it. Um, but they're having these experiences when they're out of body. And um, this is part of the process of how they move into this higher dimension. And uh, for many of them, you know, they'll say they are extremely comfortable um, that it's beautiful, 
that uh, you know they didn't anticipate it would be like this. So I think that's you know for for those who are wondering what happens at end of life, I think for many people that's that's what happens. Now, am I you know is that all that happens? I mean, are there no bad deaths? I can't say that. Um, there are bad deaths. I mean, I I haven't. I haven't been, uh, I haven't witnessed any myself, but um, I know from other doulas uh, that they have sat with people who don't want to go and, uh, you know, are kicking and screaming. So, um, you know, there's a percentage of, of the population who has that experience as well. But, you know, you, you die as you lived and um, uh, your personality doesn't change. Now, I find that people with faith uh, people who are religious, they seem to sort of ease right into it a lot easier. And I noticed that for some of these people, I, I'll see that they are seeing magnificent cathedrals or hearing choirs, you know, and, and they're, they're reflecting on it and saying, this is familiar to me, this I understand, this is what I learned, you know. So for, for them, it's sort of an extension of their beliefs already. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that doesn't mean that if you are not religious, that you can't have a, um, a good death as well. So, but that's, you know, that's just one example. And, and in the higher realms, what, what, what does one experience then? And then is obviously you mentioned before the process of reincarnation or life is eternal. So we go to the, the soul goes to the higher realms and then what happens? Well, I, I can't speak too much about reincarnation. I have uh, questions about it. Okay. So I, I don't know, but um, I read for people uh, as a medium. I'm a medium. That means I can connect with those in the afterlife. And, um, you know, I talk to people who've been in the afterlife sometimes for a very short period of time and other times for a very long period. And um, they all they all say that they're comfortable, they're happy, they're joyous, you know, it's beautiful. There is no time in the afterlife, you know, it's, it's time is infinite. It's not a material world. There's no way that we can view it the same as we view our world. It's not at all the same. Um, people are, people are the same in terms of their personalities and their souls. They are identical. Um, you know, I, when I read for people, I, I would say 99.9% .9 of the cases, I don't know who the person is that I'm reading for. I've never met them. I have no idea who they are. And, um, you know, I do a reading and they ask me to bring in their mother who died 30 years ago. And, you know, when I bring her in, um, the mother will say something and the person I'm reading for will say, that's my mother. That's exactly what my mother always said. You know, so personality is intact relationships continue, you know, um, relationships continue on the other side and they continue here as well. Someone's very close to someone here. Those in the afterlife sometimes like to hang out with, you know, somebody that they really love here. And people who are here will often say to me, yeah, I feel like they're around me. So um, the, the afterlife is sort of the best version of us uh, but I don't think we can think of it in terms of how we visual, you know, how we experience this world because it's not a material world and, you know, they can't text us or email us. I mean, they have to communicate oftentimes through symbols um, and, you know, people who are left behind sometimes are very upset that they can't talk to their loved one who's passed or if they have a connection with them, it's so short. Well, 
this is a different dimension. You know, it's just, we're, we're spoiled, you know, thinking I can reach out to, you know, you're in Australia, I can, you know, mm-hmm. we can talk instantly and have a whole conversation for hours, but um, don't worry, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, we've never encountered, for most people have never encountered other dimensions. So they have no reference point for it or how it works, but it's, it's different. But our loved ones remain the same in terms of their essence and their soul, um, but they are energy. You know, as I said at the beginning of this talk, you know, my son said, everything is energy. Well, they are energy and that's, you know, that's what creates their, that's how they stay intact. Um, but they are, there is no physical body. People have asked me, well, do they live in houses, you know, in the afterlife? Well, there's, it's not a material world. I mean, it's not a, it's not a 3D dimension. I don't know how many dimensions it is, but it's certainly not 3D. Um, So, you know, they can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. You know, if you're just energy, you can be over there and then you could be over there. You know, it's a thought process. And so, um, like the beam me up, Scotty, you know, you just, I'm, you know, you decide you're going to be there and you're there. And so, um, so it, it takes a little bit of getting used to, I think, to understand, um, how, how it works. And, you know, I can only tell you about the experiences I've had by talking, you know, connecting with people who've passed. And there seems to be a remarkably similar experience among people. I mean, although they all stay, each of them stay the same, their personalities and whatnot, but um, what they have to say about life over there is, is similar. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I guess I'm asking you questions from my human perspective, so it's very hard to express it. And your book, 25 Lessons from the Afterlife, what are the main lessons from the afterlife? Well, you know, I think the most important uh, finding uh, for me was that... Um, you know, as I mentioned, people travel, they journey at end of life. And every time they're out of body and they're traveling to this other dimension, it seems as if they pick up a little energy. It's almost like they get tanked up at the universal filling station and then they return. And every time they travel, their physical body is degenerates a little bit, but their consciousness, they seem to pick up consciousness. And this is a process that continues at end of life. You know, they're out of body, they journey, they come back They are, you know, and th- that repeats. And um, it continues until their consciousness is fully developed. It blossoms uh, at the same time that their physical body continues to deteriorate until there's nothing left. And that's when they die. Um, You know, I I guess because I wrote a book and and researched near-death experiences, I was very struck by this process of being out of body and picking up... um, energy, returning with your energy altered, because that's what happens with near-death experiencers. They, they're out of body. Now they're only out of body once. They go, they have their near-death experience, they're out of body, and then they return and that's it. But, and they can tell us what happened, but they come back with too much consciousness. They get filled up at the, that same universal filling station. It's a busy place. So they I get love that, up. a universal filling station. That's a great way to describe it. <laughs> Well, because I I just picture them, you know, everybody kind of, you know, lined up, you know, with this. Do you ever have your your car checked for emission control, you know, where they're not putting any gas in, but they put a they they put something in your tank and then they say you're done. So I picture it to look like something like that, where, you know, you go up and they 
they put something in you and then they say, okay, next. But um, we know that NDEers return with uh, too much consciousness. They are top heavy with consciousness. And that's why they have such a difficult time adjusting when they return. And that's also why they have these after effects because the after effects are an expression of this energy, this excess energy that they have. So, you know, uh, sitting with the dying and, and watching them be in and out of body and traveling and journeying and picking up consciousness every time they're out of body, I was like, this is the same thing as NDEers except times, you know, times X. Um, and so, you know, this process, you know, it seems to me is about the blossoming of, of consciousness and um, leaving, you know, sort of discarding your physical body. And, um, you know, that's the part that gets left out of our interpretation of death here on earth. You know, we only look at the discarding of the physical body and we say, well, that's the end of us, but it's a two part process and this blossoming of consciousness, I think it's something that people who are more spiritual can certainly understand and, and may have had their own experiences with that. But I think that's, you know, one of the really profound lessons about death. That's great. And just back to the near death experiences, NDE and the blossoming of consciousness and returning, one can call it gifts. It seems that the gifts subside after a while after the near-death experience. Is that, is that the case in your research? No, no, they don't ever change. So um, uh, people who return with these abilities, you know, they're still going strong after long periods of time. Um, uh, they're actually a burden for a lot of people because, you know, who wants to come back being, you know, being so different? I mean, what happens is many of these people lose their, you know, change their friends, change their jobs, move, um, you know, the things that define their previous life no longer appeal to them. They are different. That's the definition of a near-death experience. It's, it's not, you know, whether you went through a tunnel or you saw a bright light or you had a life review. It's whether you return transformed, unable to go back to your previous life. So that's the problem. That's the dilemma, dilemma for near-death experiencers. They they have to continue to live with one foot in the universe and one foot on earth. And we are not, we were not developed to, to live that way. You know, it sounds like it'd be kind of neat. And people have said to me, how can I have one of those near death experiences? That's me exactly too. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. That'll fix my life. You know, well, you don't want one. It just complicates your life. It just takes your old problems and create, turns them into new problems, you know? So, um, you, you don't want one. And uh, I don't know why the universe, uh, you know, seems to have this idea that people, you know, are supposed to have these near-death experiences because millions of people have them, mm -hmm. but um, they, they do and, um, and they continue to have them. So, you know, I, I believe that it's linked to the idea that they, uh, experiencers return to earth to become batteries of light to light the earth because they have all this excess consciousness and a lot of them, most of them want to do good and want to distribute that light in some way. You know, they may do, they may become psychics or mediums or Reiki masters or massage therapists or musicians, you know, all of these are high vibration activities. So um, that's, you know, and they want to help people. They have this universal love in their hearts. So uh, they're really of service. 
And um, it's, you know, that's certainly a good thing, but it also can complicate their lives. I think 65 to 75% of them end up divorced. Most of them leave their jobs. A lot of them can't make livings. It's, it's, not, it's not all glamorous. No, and they all fundamentally changed after the experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't, I mean, I, I've had people comment and say, gosh, I wish I had a near-death near experience, but it doesn't necessarily make you happy. Um, I, I, it definitely doesn't make you happy. I mean, there are many people who've had near-death experiences and spend uh, the, the initial years like, well, there's no data on, on, on this, but you know, there are a lot of people who try to kill themselves, first of all, because um, one thing is that, you know, so beautiful where they were, they want to go back. Yes, uh, you're right. I've interviewed a few people that have said, I wish I could die or yeah, prayed, yeah. To, prayed to die again. Yeah. One of the people in um, my book, Life After Near Death, uh, came back, was really having a very hard time adjusting and he would go for a ride uh, in California, I think on the Pacific Coast Highway, you know, at 120 miles an hour in the rain and you know, hoping that he would crash into something and a, a policeman would pull him over and say, be more careful next time. I mean, he couldn't even get himself arrested, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, he tried everything. He did not want to be here. Uh, he's fine now, but I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a tremendous adjustment, tremendous. And some of them don't ever adjust. You know, NDEers don't care about money. So a lot of them don't make any money. And then that's just another complicating factor. It's kind of hard to live if you don't have any money. So it's, it's, it's very complicated. You don't want to have, you don't want to have a near death experience. You really don't. It's not, you know, the movies and television have glamorized it. They make it sound so beautiful, you know, with uh, rainbows and butterflies and Yes, the experience itself can be like that, but you know, then you're back here. Then you're back here and you have to deal with everything that you still had to deal with. Uh, and, and now you have also new things piled on top of that. You know, you're a different person. So uh, it's, it's really complicated, but there are millions of people who've had this experience. Um, it doesn't discriminate between men, women, children, uh, agnostic, religious, you know, it, uh, by country, you know, it uh, happens to many, many people. Mm -hmm. And then I, I guess it, the, the other question is, in your opinion, why, why do we come into a physical form? Why are we here? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I don't have the answer to that. You know, that would be a good question. Well, that's question. a really good answer as well. <laughs> that might be a question to ask in a reading because, uh, you know, something may come in that is from another dimension, you know, but uh, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that. I don't mm -hmm. know. And I wanted to ask you, for those people that have lost a loved one that are grieving, what is your advice to them? Hmm. You know, grief is such a difficult thing. It really is. It, you carry it with you. Uh, it changes over time, but it never goes away. And you carry that loved one in your heart. I mean, I, I, um, I've spoken to a lot of groups that have lost children, and that's that's the most difficult. And, you know, they always want to be in touch with them. They always want to talk to them. And, you know, I tell them that um, they don't need a medium to do this. I mean, anybody can do it. Uh, when I was, when I was learning to become a medium, I went to the Arthur Finley college in the UK uh, school of mediumship. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, I, I came over for this course and uh, we were sitting in the chapel the first evening and this famous medium got up to speak. And there were about 125 of us in the class. And the medium said, you all are here to learn to become mediums. Do you want me to tell you how you become a medium? And we're all nodding our head. And he said, if you think you can do it, you can do it. And I thought, wow, I came all the way over here for that. <laughs> yeah, but it's the truth because we all have um, this little doorway in our consciousness and we can open it or we can shut it. And um, some, some people open it and some people close it. Some people who believe that they you know, can communicate or you know, they get messages, maybe just intuitive messages, they accept them and they, they acknowledge them. And the more you do that, the more, the stronger your intuition becomes, the stronger your abilities become. But if, you, but for those who, who slam the door shut, um, you know, it's harder for them to ever make a connection. But we all have that ability. Each and every one of us has an, that ability. And I've taught classes where, um, you know, I teach this in classes and everyone is able at the end of the class to do a reading. Every, so including very left brain people. So it can be taught, it's, it's possible. It's just that I think most people think that what mediums and psychics do is like magic. Like, we're, like we just know everything. I have people who ask me questions and it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just me. I just happen to be a channel that things flow through, but I'm me, I'm still me, I'm not God. You know? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, so, a great, that's a great way to explain it. True. I mean, you know, people say, what, what do you think about, I, I did a class about a month ago and somebody was like, why was the universe formed? And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I have no idea. I mean, I'm just a person like you are, you know, it's just that I happen to be like a radio antenna and, you know, could pick up things, but I can't, I don't pick them up at will. I only pick them up when I'm generally, uh, when someone's sending it to me or when I'm working. But, you know, we're having a conversation right now. I'm not tuned in trying to pick anything up. I'm focused on talking to you, uh, just like you're focused on talking to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, uh, but it's an ability that we all have. We all have. But I think in our Western culture, this has been sort of pushed out of most people. You know, they're, they're told as children, children are very open and psychic. And the first time a child mentions to their mother, hey, mommy, look at that man in the corner. Their mother says, there's nobody there and don't ever mention that again. So that's, you know, when the kid kind of shuts down. But for some kids, um, you know, they, they make that comment and the mother says, yeah, I see them too. You know, so that, that kid is then never closes the door and is, you know, remains open the rest of their lives. So, but everyone can, everyone can do this. It's, it takes, now it does take practice. It does take training. You know, on TV, they make it look like psychics just instantly know everything. Well, um, I've trained, you know, I've, I've done a lot of training for this. And, um, you know, I didn't just, I just wasn't able to sit down and do a reading instantly in the first minute that this appeared. I had to, I had to train just like, you know, you would train to learn a piece of music, right? Mm -hmm. You might have the ability, but, you know, you have to get the technique. So, um uh, but it's it's possible for everyone to make that connection. But number one is believe that you can do it. Absolutely. Well, believe and accept. You know, if you if you are getting messages, intuitive messages, listen to them, accept them. You know, don't push them aside. Don't think that's my ego or that's not the message I want to hear. So I'm not going to accept it. Um, 
when you get a message, accept it, acknowledge it. And then what happens is your angels and guides will say, oh, okay, so she got that. I think, I think I'll send Louisa another message, you know? So then they put an, another message mm -hmm. out there, you know? But if you don't ever accept the messages, it's not, you know, they're not gonna, it's not gonna be very active. Um, just, a, just a last question. You mentioned you can't do it at will, and obviously you have done a lot of training, but if you have a client, uh, you've never not been able to connect with their loved ones that they've wanted to connect with. It, 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 what I'm asking you is, because sometimes I think, oh my gosh, what if they don't come through? Or what if no one turns up to connect with me? And what if I don't receive messages? That never happens to you. Well, so the way it happens with mediums is, we, I'm the telephone line, but I can't make them pick up the telephone. So if they want to connect, they'll use me, but I, I can't go over there and grab somebody and say, you know, come right here and, and talk. That's not how it works. But um, so, you know, I'll always try and they may or may not come in. Now, usually they come in, but um, I, I will say that sometimes um, if they're very uh, introverted, if they're shy, they're the same over there. And, you know, it, it, sometimes they, I can get them, but they don't, they're, they're still shy or introverted. And I'll say to the client, was your mom like very quiet? Oh yeah, you know, she liked to just sit in the corner and read. Mm -hmm. So they're the same on the other side. I mean, if, if I'm connecting with somebody who's extroverted, it's a lot easier, even sometimes even before I'm trying to get them, they're already there. They're like, hey, I'm right here. Like what took you so long? You know, so, so um, they're just the same as they are here, but they just use me. You know, I don't have any control over who's, who's decides to do what over there. And sometimes what happens is, um, mostly what happens is, whoever wants to come in with a message is coming in. It could be your third grade teacher. It could be somebody you haven't thought about for 50 years, but if they have a message for you, they are coming in. And I can't tell you how many times I've read for someone and I've said, you know, uh, your uncle, your great uncle Joe is here. And they're like, uncle Joe. I mean, I haven't thought about him for 50 years, you know, but um, they know on the other side, what you're going through, what your life is like. And if there's some connection between your life and somebody's had, you know, prior life on the other side and something that you need to know that they can help you with, they come in. So it could be somebody that, you know, you may ask for mom and you may get, may get somebody else, but, um, you know, you may uh, eventually get your mom too, but if somebody else has a very sp specific reason for coming in, they come in, that's how it works. So I'm just the, I I'm just the, um, telephone line. I'm just the, you operator know. the telephone operator almost yeah yeah you know i just connect you and you know and the person on the other side so when people say to me when i'm reading they'll let, they'll be like can you tell mom this and i'm like mom hears you i mean she's right here the three of us are here you right know, you mom and me you know we're, we're all here so she hears you don't you don't see her or hear her but she hears everything so then also potentially if someone's lost a loved one they can talk in their mind or out loud to them and they may very well be yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah they you know now you may not get any response but they can hear you sure they can hear you they can they know everything that's going on with you well that that's a that's something comforting to know deborah thank you so much for being on passion harvest it's yes there's been a lot of food for thought thank you so much my pleasure louisa okay uh, and what a, an amazing life you've had and what a light you are in the world Oh, thank you so much. You, you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.
Bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.